0: Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 108. Joseph Goldstein on the Science of Insight. Joseph Goldstein, founder of the Insight Meditation Society, joins us again to discuss the current status and potential future of scientific research into various dimensions of Buddhist meditation. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate.
1: In different traditions, there are different approaches that people take. One is what we might call the... The bottom up is becoming mindful in a very connected way in a very grounded way with our actual situation moment to moment so that we 're seeing very clearly what's happening in our bodies what's happening in our minds the nature of our thoughts understanding you know those patterns which cause suffering understanding the mechanism of freeing the mind so it's, it's really diving into the nitty gritty of our actual experience, seeing what's what, sorting it out, and beginning to let go of those conditions that cause suffering. So that's what I would call working from the bottom up or from the ground up. The other approach, which is found in certain traditions, sometimes it's been described as swooping from above. Mm. Those traditions which point to the absolute nature of mind, directly. And they're just pointing to the unborn, the unformed uh, nature of mind that is already free. And if there can be a recognition of that from the beginning, then the practice is the stabilization of that awareness. So both of those, I think, have... Uh, both strengths and weaknesses, and that's why I think they really support each other rather than I don't see them as conflicting with one another. The danger in the bottom-up approach is we we can become fascinated with our own suffering and in some way attached to it and locked into trying to figure it out, forgetting it's essentially empty nature, You know, the empty nature of thoughts and emotions and feelings. And so we lose, or we can lose, the realization of of the quality of transparency of it all because we're we're so involved in digging around in it. So understanding the essential transparency or emptiness of it actually frees us to work with it in a much more effective way. On the other side, the danger of the caution and the swooping from above Is that we can have a moment of genuine realization, you know, transforming realization where we open to the unbound nature of mind, the free nature of mind, and then think that that one moment of seeing is enough and forgetting that the habit patterns of mind are very deeply ingrained. And one moment of clear seeing is not enough to free the mind from getting lost in long-established patterns that perhaps go back over lifetimes. And so, from that side, there was a teacher, which an ancient Korean master, who formulated an expression that I have tremendous appreciation for. Uh, the master's name was Shinul, and I think he lived in the 11th century or 12th century sometime around then. And he, he formulated his teachings in terms of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And for me, it brought these two ways together. It acknowledged the power of those moments of sudden awakening that really transform how we understand things and then emphasized the need, the, the essential need, for the gradual cultivation, both of that awareness and of the understanding of the nitty-gritty of our minds, mm. you know, of the ways we do get caught over and over again. And so it's a combination of the two that I find very unifying and whole.
0: It's interesting you bring up Chanul, because I, I remember reading Robert Buswell's book on Chanul and and seeing that there were these other schools at the time that, that were pushing like a sudden awakening, sudden cultivation, that in those moments of awakening, like it was all done. And that's yeah. that's kind of the path they actually taught. And, yeah. uh, do you see any of that happening currently in... in
1: oh, I do. I mean, I think that's it's one of the reasons I feel quite impassioned by all this because being so involved in the Dharma scene in the West now and meeting so many different people, I've met people who have gotten caught on both sides, you know, who've gotten caught, as I say, just really lost in their own suffering and have lost sight of... The inherent freedom of mind. And I've also seen people who have gotten entranced with those moments of realization and not seeing that there are a lot of the old habit patterns still there that need to be worked with. And so don't do that work, don't do that necessary work, mm-hmm. and often get in trouble because of it. So that's why Chenille's expression seemed to just bring forth the best of both approaches.
0: Another interesting area that I've been wondering about is this whole convergence of scientific neuroscience and different disciplines in the sciences, and then this very pragmatic approach that I see in in many of the great Buddhist traditions of what you could call like a contemplative science of sorts, and and how these two areas are converging. And I know that you've been a part of that. The IMS has been hosting retreats for scientists and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering how you're seeing that dialogue going currently
1: uh, The dialogue is great. Of course, it started with His Holiness the Dalai Lama meeting with you know well-known scientists and neuroscientists through the Mind Life Institute, and many of the people involved in Mind Life were also uh, students of Vipassana of Insight Practice. So there was kind of a natural fit there, and out of those conferences uh, came the idea of having a retreat for scientists. And it was pretty remarkable. It was a very, a very unusual group of people.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, first, they were all really smart, mm-hmm. and so it was very interesting just dialoguing, you know, with them about the practice. Something else that was quite noticeable was, I think, because of their training, um, they were really good at following instructions. Mm. You know, and so we would give the meditation instructions every morning and people would actually do it. <laughs> and that was, you know, with, with a lot of clarity. because I think that was just part of their training. So I have some instructions and then you follow the instructions and then you look for the outcome. So it was quite unusual. Was this particular group of people, there was their own dynamic on the retreat. And what was interesting is that while many of them had been studying the effects of meditation, you know, particularly the neuroscientists and to some extent the psychologists, not that many of them had actually practiced for themselves. So they were studying it in other people. And this was a way for them to get the first person subjective experience of what they were studying. And of course, there was tremendous interest mm-hmm. for them to see how it was working. From the inside. Um, and then that also became a way for them to help develop, uh, along with discussions that we had in the teachers and uh, the scientists, of what kind of experiments to devise. Because, in some way, the technology is running ahead of the understanding of how to use it.
0: Yeah, yeah. With
1: regard to the study of meditative states. Right you know, so they have all these great machines and technology but to actually create useful experiments and even what to study that's a whole growing field and it's at the very beginning they did one quite elaborate experiment at ims at the beginning and end of one of our three-month courses and they had some pretty dramatic results from those experiments one of the things they were studying was something called the attentional blink and the experiment they set up was they would be flashing a series of for example letters very quickly one after the other and then interspersed with that would be a number all flashing very quickly and then other letters and then another number Right. And so they were testing to see whether people could pick up those anomalies right. you know, in the sequence. Generally, it had been believed that when people fixate on one uh, experience, there is a hardwired, what they called an attentional blink, mm. really coming out of a certain quality of fixation of mind you know, on what's being seen, so that they miss the second appearance of the number.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The scientists believe that this is just how the mind was set up. What they found was that in the in the meditators they studied, one hundred percent of the meditators improved their ability to pick up the second Number or letter, mm-hmm. or whatever it was, and in some people there was no attentional blink at all. Wow! Wow! People were there with each flash of the of the letter or the number. So it was just a, it was it was an affirmation, really, mm-hmm. of what as meditators we already knew, because the practice of awareness, you know, especially in long term practice, does refine our ability to be aware in a very momentary way. But this was an unusual discovery for the scientists who had had a <laughs> different paradigm right, of understanding how the mind worked.
0: Yeah, yeah, but they're scratching their heads.
1: Yeah, and <gasps> also seeing that the mind can be trained. Right, so it sounds like the
0: meditators actually lowered their perceptual thresholds in some
1: way. Yeah. Mm. Other studies were done not here at IMS, but... In other places, studying uh, the effect of compassion meditation Mm. and you know seeing what areas of the brain lit up Mm -hmm. when compassion was present, and uh, with some, and this was people in the Tibetan tradition, uh, some advanced practitioners, it's like the activity of (laughs) the brain activity when they were doing their compassion practice Mm -hmm. was off the charts in terms of what they had ever seen before. Wow. So it's things like that. It's like there's a growing affirmation of what, as I say, as meditators we knew what happened, but this is sort of objective verification
0: of mm. it.
1: And you'd so mention it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And you'd mentioned that the teachers and you were giving suggestions or pointing in, in directions that the researchers might go and I'm wondering cuz some of these studies and the ones I've seen seem sort of basic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think more kind of specific or maybe even advanced types of studies might try to uncover?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I I've had a few ideas. Of course, I'm not I'm not that familiar with the necessary scientific methodology.
0: Correct. Right. And
1: so, some of my ideas might not actually be very practical. Right. But a, a, a couple of ideas that I had, one which I think would work, would be just to study the brain states. You know, the neuroscience of people in deep meditative states of concentration you know, what we call the jhanas, or absorptions, because that's really a qualitatively different experience than our normal perception, the way we are normally in the world. And so if we could get people who were skilled enough to enter those states at will, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, to study what's happening in their brains, I thought that would be interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, very. Uh,
1: And then I also thought it would be interesting to... Study and this may be a little more difficult to figure out how to do it experimentally, but to take people who seem to have realized at least the first stages of awakening, mm-hmm. uh, and within the Theravada tradition, that that really means people who have uprooted the core belief in self, you know, really had that transforming realization of selflessness. And there are a body of people out there who have had that experience right <laughs> I thought it would be interesting just to see if it's reflected in any way in brain activity yeah, 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 uh, definitely. so I discussed this. I was at one meeting, it was a mind life meeting, a kind of a planning meeting, talking about what kinds of experiments you know they might work on, and uh, I just put this out as a general idea and. There was some interest, although it wasn't clear yet to people how they might set up the experiment.
0: Right, right, because these are changes presumably that have already happened, and there might be some.
1: Yeah, but uh, you know, maybe with further discussion and yeah, there might be a way to do that.
0: Well, it seems really interesting because just the amount of people that you've been exposed to, that have been practitioners, and then the amount of teachers that you're exposed to. I mean, and the and depth of knowledge that you have of these methodologies and the results. They have this real unique perspective on what what neuroscientists might be interested in exploring. Do you see a possibility of neuroscientists themselves realizing classic enlightenment and then having an even better sense of how to go about these things, having both experiences themselves?
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely think that's possible. Some of the scientists are, are very dedicated practitioners. So I definitely see that that's a possibility. I think it's it's, it's those people in particular who are moving this whole dialogue forward. You know, people have really tasted something for themselves in practice and are also doing the science work. What's interesting is that I think for many years, the scientific community has, in a way, looked down upon subjective-type experiences as being unscientific. (laughs) Right. But now, with the ability to measure, you know, it's a great scientific uh, <laughs> endeavor. Right. <laughs> uh, once something can be measured, it has a certain credibility. So with the technology being able to do that, there's now, I think, a much greater interest, or at least in some part of the scientific community, in all of this. So it's quite exciting. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of possibilities that yeah. might open up.
0: Interesting. And do you think that, the results of some of these studies will then turn into technologies that could aid people.
1: Well, that would be
0: great—a
1: <laughs> little enlightenment machine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the first to sign up. <laughs> okay. Sweet. I mean, who knows? You know, right. it's, it's it's hard to imagine. Yeah. I, I did have I did have an idea years ago. A little bit in the realm of science fiction, but maybe it's coming to have a virtual bardo machine. Hmm. You know, and this is, you know, using the teachings of the Tibetan tradition, you know, the bardo, uh, the afterlife experience right. or rebirth. Right. And, and there are, you know, within the Tibetan teachings, very elaborate descriptions of what happens in that state. And so I just had this idea of a kind of virtual reality headset or something, which would replicate those experiences as a way of practicing being in them with equanimity and balance and awareness. But so far, uh, nobody's jumped on the idea.
0: Fascinating. That's really good. Well, I'm glad you you brought that up because this is Buddhist Geeks and
1: uh, we've got a lot of geeky (laughs) listeners out there, so I'm
0: sure they dig that. I'm wondering if you have anything else you'd like to add that you didn't feel like was covered in our questions.
1: I think I'd maybe just, just like to end with kind of emphasizing what really is at the essence of all of the different traditions and practices and approaches in terms of freedom. And from whatever tradition we look at, it really is about letting go of grasping. You know, And the Buddha talked about over and over again liberation through non-clinging. So I've, I like to always bring it back to that. There are so many methods and so many descriptions and so many approaches, but all of them converge in that understanding of what liberates the mind. Mm. Uh, and so whatever practice we do, and again, this is coming back to the pragmatism mm. of Dharma in the West, whatever practice we do, is it helping us to free the mind from grasping, from fixation, you know, from attachment And it's in the freedom from that that we really experience the peace that the Buddha talked about.
0: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.